Good morning. Whoa. Great to be with you, be with you guys all this morning. Um, I get to see people I don't get to see a lot. I got my hug from Ruth. It's good. Some of you young people here probably don't even know how, like what Ruth used to do here on Sundays. When I first started coming here uh, at Congress in 1990, uh, Ruth was responsible for me not starving to death for the first year that I was here. I ate probably, I don't know, 25% of my meals at her house, and her and Harvey used to cook up the chicken every Sunday. And uh, my friend Bill Icavelli and I used to call it the Church of the Blessed Barbecue <laughs> when we first started coming here. <laughs> and uh, so I'm glad to get to see everybody again. Um, let's, uh, let's open in prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, what a privilege it is to gather as believers and be able to open your word, uh, your timeless, perfect word uh, that we get to read this morning. Lord, give us, um, give us your heart as we open up your word this morning. Help us to see uh, what you want us to see out of your word and maybe something different for each of us this morning, but we just ask the ble- that you would bless the reading and teaching and listening of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would turn to Acts chapter 6 with me, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses in Acts chapter 6. The 1960s was a tumultuous time in America. I was born in 1966, so I don't remember a lot of it. I have a few memories, a lot of stuff going on culturally in America in the 1960s. The Civil Rights Movement, we had the assassination of President Kennedy, his brother Bobby, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the Vietnam War, and the hippie movement happened in the 60s. Um, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, 1965, a guy named Hudson Armerding Uh, became the president of Wheaton College. He was a World War II veteran, uh, and he despised the hippie movement, at least initially. To him, they represented flag burners and unpatriotic draft resistors. And like many Christian leaders of that time, he was forced to grapple with the hippie movement, people who dressed counterculturally, who didn't look uh, like, like everybody else, didn't smell like everybody else, didn't act like everybody else. Uh, His reaction to this was going to be critical. So he was forced to consider uh, the difference between what was biblically wrong and what was culturally different. Um, In other words, he was forced to consider his prejudices. The story is told that one day Armerding was scheduled scheduled to speak in the chapel at Wheaton and that uh, he and a few other people gathered for a prayer service right before he was going to go up and speak. Right then, as they're gathered for this short time of prayer, a young man walked in, had a beard, long hair, sandals, sash around his waist, and he sat down right next to the president in the prayer circle. And needless to say, Armerding's attitude was not uh, his most godly at that moment. So the young man began to pray. He said, Dear Lord, you know how much I admire Dr. Armerding, how I appreciate his walk with you. 
I'm grateful for what a man of God he is and how he loves you and loves your people. Lord, bless him today. Give him liberty in the Holy Spirit and make him a real blessing to all of us in the student body. Help us to have open hearts to hear what he has to say, and may we do what you want us to do. <laughs> That's not what anyone was expecting to hear. That's not what Armerding was expecting to hear. So Armerding went up and gave his message. Um, and then at the end of his message, he asked the young man to come up to the platform that had prayed in the prayer circle. So the crowded auditorium of students was suddenly in a murmur of whispers. Uh, they thought that the president might expel the young man right in front of them uh, for the way he was dressed. So to everyone surprised, including the, the young man, Dr. Armerding put his arms around him, embraced him as a brother in Christ. It broke up the chapel service. Uh, students were standing and applauding. Uh, people were crying. People were embracing one another. And so God used this simple act of one man uh, laying aside his, I'll say, prejudice to turn the mood on that campus to one of greater love and acceptance of one another. But there's more. The last part of the story is Dr. Armading later learned that this young man had adopted his appearance in order to reach some of his generation who were alienated from God. Wow, so how many times do we do this? That we judge people like that. We think we know their motives. We think we know all about them. And then the rest of the story gets told somewhere along the line. So we've been teaching through the book of Acts at Crossroads. And I want to share with you just seven verses this morning from Acts chapter 6. The pa this passage that I'm going to read you is not unlike the story I just told you. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, uh, let's take a look at those verses. So in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian, or some of you have New American Standard, would say Hellenistic, Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the church was growing, and they had some practical, sort of logistical problems to deal with, and they had some prejudicial problems to deal with. 
Okay, they didn't have the hippies coming in among them. They had another type of group of people that came in among them, and these were these uh, Hellenistic or Grecian Jews. So they were Jews uh, from another country uh, that were coming back. They had emigrated back to Israel after one of the diasporas or dispersions. Think of one of the big dispersions was the Babylonian exile, right? They think Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. Uh, Many of the Jews from these other lands wanted to come back to Israel, maybe to be buried in their homeland. Um, So they, for one reason or another, they came back. And as their, uh, with, with regard to these widows, as their husbands died, their family support structure wasn't there anymore because they've been displaced from where they had lived. Um, and so there were these many needy uh, widows of these, these Hellenistic Jews. Um, they probably spoke a different language, maybe Greek, maybe the tongue of the, the land that they came from, whereas everyone else there was speaking Aramaic or Hebrew. Think about all the different languages that happened at Pentecost, and that gives you some idea of what was happening, a lot of different languages. These Hellenistic Jews may have been less educated uh, than the native uh, Hebraic Jews. They probably dressed differently. I was going to say that they all wore sandals like the hippies, but they probably all did wear sandals back then. So maybe they wore uh, whatever was, you know, countercultural at the time, like uh, Uggs or Birkenstocks or something. Um, So we're not immune to these types of prejudices ourselves, are we? I mean, for example, how do we feel about Christians who smoke? Is it possible to be a smoker and be filled with the Holy Spirit? For instance, I heard a story of one preacher who wanted to make this point to his congregation, so he lit up a cigar during his sermon Uh, But then he turned blue and cut the sermon short. (laughs) So I'm going to spare you that agony, that object lesson this morning. I'm not going to light up. Um, Did you know that Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars? Jonathan Edwards smoked a pipe. C.S. Lewis smoked cigarettes all through his life. Now, I'm not condoning smoking, and we know a lot more about the harmful effects of smoking now than we did back then. I heard a story about a German Christian who was appalled that American Christians looked down on him for drinking beer, but they were perfectly comfortable going to bowling alleys. So apparently to him, everyone in Germany drank beer, but going to a bowling alley represented like worldly debauchery that he would never do. How do we feel about Christians with tattoos or who play cards? Um, I'm not condoning any of these examples, but I'm trying to illustrate what was happening in the church back in this time. You've got these foreigners coming in, and they're needy. Um, And the native Hebrews were looking down on them, treating them uh, as second-class citizens. And apparently, the discrimination carried over into the church, right? So as these people heard the gospel message, and they were saved, they came into the church, uh, and you can see how it kind of could have happened. Maybe because they spoke a different language, maybe they had to have separate church meetings, right? Because, okay, they don't understand this language, so we're going to have another church meeting over here for them. 
Judaism did have a system for distributing food to the poor, but that wouldn't have been available to these folks that came into the church because they would have been cut off from that system of support. So therefore, the early church had a very real and practical problem on their hands. They had a prejudicial system or issue that they had to deal with, and they had an issue of this food distribution. So the question was, what do you do about it? Do you just kind of like ignore it and turn away and hope that it just goes away and hope the murmuring stops and everybody becomes happy? Uh, too many times we let problems like this fester in the church where something's going on, everybody knows something's going on, and no one kind of steps forward to lead or to do something. So the question is, would they choose to do something about it? So indeed, they did. Uh, they recognized that God wanted them to break down their prejudices. God wanted them to put in some systems for how to deal with a growing church. I mean, at Pentecost, I think it said, what, 3,000 came in the first day, right? So there's practical problems that have to be dealt with, and they, they realized that uh, that God wanted them to deal with that. Now, I work, uh, I have a secular job. I work at CareStream. I'm an engineer. I work in the research and development area. One of our sayings there as we're developing things is to step up to problems as soon as possible because they just get worse over time. And so if there's some nagging problem with a design or some problem of physics or something that needs to be solved, the idea is let's go tackle it like the first thing, even though it's like the hardest thing to do, let's go do that first because it's just going to fester and it's just going to get worse over time. So let's go get that. And that's what the early uh, leaders of this church decided to do. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So there are really two problems going on here, right, when you read this. One is the obvious. The Hellenistic Hebrews were being overlooked in the food distribution. Second, the apostles were going to be distracted from their primary calling of ministering the word of God to the church. So those are the two problems. One is a little less obvious than the other. The first problem was easy to understand. There's complaining. Um, the second problem, you had to look a little deeper. Now, the apostles realized that this was not going to be just a quick fix, right? That there was going to, it was going to take some time to solve the food distribution problem properly and to assure that the solution was effective. So maybe there was going to be damage control to be done in the church. Maybe some people were offended. This happens today. Maybe we have to have to go meet with people in their homes. Maybe we have to have a meeting to talk, about, talk with the offended parties. Maybe there needs to be mending of old prejudices and understanding of each other. Why did the Hebrews look down on the Hellenistic Jews anyway? They understand that this was going to take some time to sort through. Any leader in any church knows how this works, right? That it takes time to sort through when people are offended. And so the disciples had a choice uh, to either take that time and go do that and be distracted from what God called them to do, or they came up with another idea. They could just, like I said, they could have just ignored it, but they chose not to. Uh, they came up with another idea. Verse 3, Brothers, choose seven men from among you, 
who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. There it is again. The twelve, referring to the apostles, call uh, the disciples or brothers together, presumably the men of the church, and ask them to select seven from among them. It doesn't say how they picked them. They just said, pick seven. And I'm going to give you a very interesting point about this in a minute. So the apostles realize this is not our calling to figure out this food distribution problem. So we're going to, we're going to come up with another way to do it. So it assumes when they called the church together that people were available to want to help solve the problem. <laughs> this is another problem that sometimes we have in churches is there's you know, there's a problem to solve and there's somebody who wants to kind of get going on a solution or a ministry or something like that. And sometimes people aren't wanting to engage and want to help. So it assumed that people were available and then it turns out that they were. And as the church was growing, there was going to be more and more of these like business kind of things, logistical problems to solve. And so this was the beginning of that process. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. We don't know how they were chosen, but you know what's curious about their names? What is curious about their names as you read their names? Do they sound like Hebrew names? <laughs> they sound like Greek names. So this is very interesting. And the first two we hear about, Stephen, Philip, we're going to read about them in a couple chapters in Acts. Keep reading after this. So they appointed people with Greek names to deal with the problem of injustice against the Grecian or Hellenistic Hebrews. This is a very interesting point, a very subtle point, but a very interesting point to me. First, I want to make two comments here on this. First, God expects us to use our common sense and creativity when living our lives and solving problems and problems in the church, inside or outside the church. We're not supposed to check our brains at the door. In other words, he can give us godly wisdom on how to solve a problem like this. Second, there's to be no favoritism in the church for certain groups, for certain people groups, appointing non-native Hebrews for this role of administering food made a strong statement. And surely there were Hebrew men involved in the decision. Good for them, right? You've got, go pick seven people to solve the problem. They picked the people and they came up with people and one was a convert to Judaism even. The last person... Uh, the last person whose name, uh, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And so they showed a lot of, I guess what I'm trying to say here is they showed a lot of godly wisdom in this, right? That they, there was a problem to solve. God said, step up to it, deal with the prejudice, solve the logistical problem. And they said, okay, the way we're going to solve it is we're not just going to appoint all native Hebrew people to fix this thing. We're going to appoint people who have maybe a greater degree of sensitivity toward wanting to fix this thing. And that's how they did it. Let's keep going. There's much debate about these, these folks in the commentaries about whether these seven are really the first deacons or not. 
So if you could pick up seven different commentaries, you could probably find seven different opinions on this. And I guess my position is, is while these men are not designated and called directly deacons here at this point, uh, but the word that's used to wait on tables, this diaconine, is the verb form of the word where we get our word deacon, uh, diaconus. And so it, it means servant. It means to serve. They use this word as the word to wait on tables. And it literally means to serve, to be commissioned as a messenger or an agent of a superior. So deacons, however, are much more than table servers, right? Alex Strauch uh, just came out with a, a new book recently in the last couple of years called Paul's Vision for the Deacons. He updated his original book on deacons. And he argues that a better definition of the term deacons is assistance. So although one of the mandates for deacons is to care for the church's poor and needy, uh, he argues that they're also assistance to the elders. So as to allow, I'm quoting him, allow the elders of the church to focus more on feeding, leading, and protecting God's flock. There are many things that our deacons do at Crossroads, my home church, that allow me and our other elder at the church, Steve Nichols, to do things that God has called us to do in the church. I'm here this morning doing one of them. Um, we all serve in multiple areas, though. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this idea in a minute, about this idea of getting pigeonholed into one area of service. But first, I want to go more for the qualifications. So he lists three qualifications here. Being full of the Spirit, being full of wisdom, and having a reputation of being known for these things. That's the, the only guidance that was given for picking these seven. Be full of, the, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, and have a reputation for being known for those two things. There's a more comprehensive list found in 1 Timothy. If you turn over to 1 Timothy 3, chapter 3 and verse 8, there's a section in there describing deacons, and I'd like to just read that with you right now. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but, but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So this description comes right on the heels. What, what was earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it was a qualification for elders. And how does that end in verse 7, 3, 7? It says, he, an elder, must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So Paul is emphasizing two more times about elders and deacons as Luke does in the book of Acts. Hey, there's a good reputation is important. The New American Standard says that, men of good reputation in Acts 6.3. So does that mean elders and deacons are to behave like the world so that we can win the favor of the world? Or to believe things that the world believes? Oh, obviously not. Um, it means that elders and deacons are to live lives of integrity and high character so that it will be possible for people to respect them even though they may disagree with them, to have an opportunity 
to have a platform and win an audience for the gospel and the church. Anybody who's ever been put forward as an elder or a deacon and has had to uh, be compared to these qualifications understands what an impossible task that is. Um, and so every, every elder and deacon, I think, falls short in some degree uh, of the qualifications here. But what we're looking for is we're looking for how a person's character and integrity uh, match up with these. So none of us can make someone respect us who, you know, who disagrees with us, but we can make it possible for them to respect us. I mean, this is the problem with our current political commentary going on right now in the country, right? In that we, we have a hard time disagreeing with each other uh, without attacking each other. And, is it, and we need to learn that we can, it's possible to disagree with each other and still be respectful of each other. I can disagree with a person's lifestyle that I worked with, that I work with, and I can still respect them and not let that interfere with my working relationship with them. So why does Paul emphasize this reputation of church leaders? Um, well, there are a few things, you've, you've heard stories of this and seen it in the news. There are a few things that Satan loves better than trapping and disgracing a church leader, an elder, a deacon, a pastor, uh, and letting that unfold uh, like a slow motion train wreck in front of the world. Uh, that is where Satan is at his happiest right there, where he's got Christian leaders caught in sin and it's just being paraded in front of the world to see. Notice how those, those stories tend to make the front page of USA Today. So elders and deacons need to be wary of this to maintain their integrity and a good reputation before leaders. Billy Graham was famous for you know, having his rules. He realized that he was a targeted person as a representative of Christianity. He realized that people were going to be trying to trap him. And so he created this set of rules. And one of the rules that's gotten a lot of uh, publicity lately is where he said, I would never be alone in a car or an elevator with a woman. Uh, not necessarily because he didn't want to be tempted. He just didn't want to be put in a situation where somebody could say, and accuse him of something. Mike Pence, our vice president, has adopted some of these rules and has told people about it, and he's taken a ton of criticism over this. But people do it. Uh, Billy Graham did it uh, because he did not want to bring disgrace, have any chance of there be disgrace brought upon the gospel or the church. Um, and so whether we're elders or deacons or just uh, church members, believers of any sort, we need to be wary of how damaging uh, that type of thing can be to the work of Christ here in the world. So let's just double back for a second before we close on this. Uh, let's double back for a minute and think about the reason that the apostles chose to delegate the work in the first place. So they said in Acts 6-4, they said, We'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So a skeptic might say at this point, were they just trying to get out of doing the hard work? <laughs> That's very convenient, isn't it? That there's a lot of physical demanding work that needs to be done. There's controversy to be dealt with. Let's just pick, go pick seven people and deal with that. 
A skeptic might say that. There were a couple things working here, though, that I would suggest as an alternative. They were trying to look, the apostles were trying to look at the big picture in mind, what they had been called to, the spreading of the gospel and growing the church. This wasn't just the decision about what was comfortable for them in any given day or what they felt like doing on a given day. They had the long-term view in mind of the church. We got to solve logistical problems. We got to deal with this prejudice thing. We have a mission to do ourselves. And they used godly wisdom in how they were going to deal with that. So second, in recognizing all that, they wanted to be true to what God called them to do, to be fishers of men. That's what he called, that's what Jesus called them to do. They'd been given a commission directly from Jesus to do this work. And they needed to stay true to that calling, but they also needed to shepherd the church. So they had a bit of a problem that they needed to solve. So let me ask you this. Here's a practical point. Does this mean as believers that we always need to stay in our lane, so to speak, in terms of where we serve? So each of you as believers in Jesus Christ have been given at least one and maybe portions of multiple spiritual gifts. Is it that should you never operate outside of your giftedness? This is a very practical question that we all have to face up to, right? I don't think so. I had, I had a supervisor at Kodak, my first supervisor at Kodak when I started there. His name was David P. Smith. And the first couple of weeks, he would come around to my desk and he would say, Hey, Wenlet, are you gainfully employed today? I'd be like, what do you mean gainfully employed? He's like, well, are you, you know, are, you, are you doing the right things for the company? Are you making money for Kodak? I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I think so. And he's like, well, he's like, I got to find your edge. He's like, I got to, you know, he's like, your edge right now, he pointed at the edge of the desk. He's like, it's right here. I want to push you right up to the edge of your capability, but I don't want to push you over the edge. And he's like, guess what? In two weeks or two months, your edge is going to move. Ooh, <laughs> what do you mean my edge is going to move? Well, you're going to get better at what you do. You're going to have more capability. Your edge is going to move, and I'm going to keep pushing you toward your edge. I'm like, wow, that's very interesting. And then he's like, he went on to tell me another story. He's like, picture a fence going down two yards. We'll just call this the congregation here. Fence going down the middle. He's like, on one side of the fence is all the stuff you love to do as an engineer all the concept ideation and calculations and going out and learning all kinds of new technical things. That's what's over here. And on this side of the fence is all the stuff that Kodak needs you to do <laughs> to keep the company running. Some of these things might not be your most favorite things to do. So he's like, my goal is to keep you walking right down the middle of the fence so that I don't let you stray too far this way, and I don't let you stray too far that way. So how does that apply to using our spiritual gifts within the church? The apostles had a choice. They could have run off and spent days or weeks or longer trying to solve the food distribution problem and the the uh, prejudicial problem going on in the church, or they could have appointed people to do it. So 
Think about the people they appointed, though. The first two people were who? It was Stephen and Philip. Did Stephen and Philip stay waiting on tables for the rest of their life? No. (laughs) They didn't just stay and, okay, so they had some gifting and service, and they went and they did it. But like one chapter later, or two, within two chapters, we find out that Stephen got to preach to the Sanhedrin. That's a little far away from waiting on tables. He got to preach to the Sanhedrin, and he was martyred for his faith. He was stoned. Stephen didn't just stay in one lane, right? If you would have asked me, you know, at any point in my life prior to moving to Rochester in my early 20s, whether I thought I would ever have anything to do with being a leader in the church or preaching or anything like that, given the dysfunctional situation that I grew up in and the unchurched family, no one, I would have been the, never guessed in a million years that I would very, you know, veer into this kind of work or ministry. Never in a million years. People around me would have said that I would be more likely to end up like in some sort of detention center or something as opposed to, you know, preaching the gospel, right? What about Philip? What did he do? Did he stay waiting on tables? He went out and it says like in the next chapter, he did all kinds of miracles. You know, in chapter eight, he's doing miracles in Samaria, and he casting demons out and healing people of all sorts of diseases. And then later in the chapter, it says he went and preached the gospel all over the place. Did he stay in his lane? No, but he did what he was called to do. It's sort of like those that, that sides of the fence that my old supervisor would talk about. There's a lot of things that have to be done in the church that may not be anyone's spiritual gift. <laughs> And there's other things in the church where, wow, you're just like in your lane. You're like serving with a smile on your face. You're in your area of giftedness. Let's go get some more. And so I think the practical answer is, is that if you can spend most of the time serving in your area of giftedness, in other words, how do you know what your gift is? Is it easy? Is there fruit from it? Do you enjoy it? Do others say that you're good at it? It's probably a spiritual gift. Um, If you can spend most of your time doing that kind of stuff with a smile on your face, that's awesome. You're going to have to probably do some other things, though, along the way. And maybe you do have a good, maybe your primary gift is the gift of serving and waiting on tables and doing those things. That's great, too. What were the results of all this? Well, let me just make one more comment about gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that your gifts should be used for the strengthening of the church. So God gave us spiritual gifts with the primary reason in mind that it was for the strengthening and the building up of his body, which is the most important thing on earth to him, the body of Christ. So our gifts primarily are to be used there And so as we consider the use of our gifts, we need to consider how our gifts can be used in the church, how they impact in the church. 
just like the apostles did. They said, I've been given something to do, but I need to consider what's happening with the church here, the need to solve the logistical problems, the need to deal with this prejudice issue. They had the long view in mind, and that's how they went about it. And so it helps sometimes if we can have the long view in mind. You are God's gift to Cornerstone. How can you or how are you using your gifts here at Cornerstone? That's an important part, I think, of this passage is looking at the big picture. And remember, your edge is going to move. So your edge might be here now. You start serving. You start spreading your wings a little bit. Your edge might move. It probably will move. You're going to be able to do more. God's going to give you more capability, more responsibility. Let's wrap this up. What's the, what's the results of all this? Verse 7, Acts 6, 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Wow, even priests were getting saved. While tangible results are not always the sign of being in the will of God in Scripture, sometimes people follow the will of God and there's no tangible result. In this case, there was a huge tangible result. People are coming to the Lord left and right. When the apostles devoted themselves to the Word of God and to prayer, wow, the Word of God spread. Isn't that amazing? When somebody devoted themselves to it, it spread, and that's what they were called to do. Priests were converted. New disciples were popping up left and right. The church started in Jerusalem, and then right after this section in Acts, what happened? They got dispersed, persecuted, get out of Jerusalem. The revolution was underway, and it started with a few faithful people doing what God had called them to do. And so I would just encourage you this morning, think about the gifts that you've been given and what God wants you to do, what, what God wants to do with you in the big picture. What does God want you to do here at Cornerstone? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this just very simple uh, little passage in Acts that has such profound implications to the early church. Lord, we are so grateful to have this kind of practical instruction that really just kind of where the, the shoe leather meets the ground. I just ask for your blessing upon each person here today that uh, you would impress upon them what you would have them to take from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.